History has chosen us. If that sounds like something a politician would say, I'm sorry, but I mean it literally. History has chosen us. Not the grand history of the kings and of wars or dates and textbooks, but rather our own secret histories. The history of our childhood and of our grandparents' childhoods. That's what has chosen us. History has chosen us to take part in the creation of memories out of the present. Bonjour, Tretress. I am Douglas Bowles, and this is 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. This morning on this December 17th full moon, we bring to you episode number 115 and a Billy Moon. And perhaps today, with the help of Christopher Robin, we can locate the North Pole. Good morning. Will Morgan here, and as we set a trap for a heffalump, we share 42 minutes with Douglas Lane, writer, blogger, philosopher, and podcaster, whose short fiction has been featured in mag- magazines nationally and abroad. He is the author of several short story collections and novellas, of which more information can be found on his website, douglaslane.com. Mr. Lane is the host of the Diet Soap podcast, which is dedicated to applying imagination and intellect to the problems of late capitalism. Most recently... His first novel, Billy Moon, was published by Tor Books. I think everybody should probably be familiar with them. This past August, at which time we formally met him for episode number 99. It's really good to to have you back. Good morning. Good morning. Bonjour. I'm so (laughs) glad that we're going to speak in English, though, for the rest of this episode. (laughs) Well, how do you say, I, I can't, I was trying to pronounce it. Uh, but what were you trying to bonjour tristesse? Tristesse, the, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I can't. Uh, you know, I, and that's probably wrong. It, it's very. The, I think the most embarrassing thing about uh, having had having written this book and gone on tour with it is having to read French aloud in front of a crowd, because you know mm. I I wrecked it, and uh, you just don't look so impressive when you just stumble along, like bonjour tristesse, which is hello sadness. Uh, which is um, Sagan's book. Uh, you know, it's a big title in the book. It's mentioned a lot, and I can't pronounce it very well. So, <laughs> that's part. Well, so w- that's funny. We'll talk about the book tour, but so when you went out, was there a section that you liked to read? Um, there was, and you read from it. Ah. Um, that was the section I read uh, the most of the speech that Christopher Robin gives there at Charlotte Stadium is what I would read to crowds. Because I thought it was, well, it made sense to be reading that aloud because he was saying it you know, to the crowd. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, we talked to you. The, the book launched. You had, uh, your Kickstarter was successful. You were funded to go on tour. And you mm-hmm. mentioned that you had about uh, like three or four destinations. Could you tell our listeners, you know, where you went and how it, how it went and, you know, who yeah. you who you were with, that kind of thing? Yeah, I went to San Francisco and to Chicago and uh, to um, New York, and I was with, I stayed with Kevin Dole and Brad Potts and then in a hotel in New York, which was nice, good hotel. And so people who listen to my podcast put me up along the way, too. Um, And I was at uh, Borderland Books in San Francisco and the, the, the bookseller, spelled C-E-L-L-A-R in Chicago, 
and I was at the Blue Stockings Bookstore in New York. And uh, the most, the, the best part of it was meeting people who had listened to my podcast or who had read my work, and um, or maybe none of those things, but maybe just people I knew through Facebook or online but had never met in real life. And meeting them, especially in New York, there are a lot of, I mean, not, you know, Brad was great and Kevin was great, but I met a lot of people in New York and it was really interesting and it was kind of weird to realize that these faces from Facebook were attached to real people. And most of them were shorter than you would expect. <laughs> <laughs> and so okay. then the book, how is it, are you feeling pretty successful with it? At how has it point? been received? Um, you know, I I uh, feel successful with it and not successful with it at the same time. It's it's a uh, it's a funny book. The uh, so critically, it was a success. Meaning, if you look at the reviews written by critics from you know, publications, like it was it's got a star review in the Library Journal. I got good review in the Publishers Weekly. It got a good review in uh, Portland Monthly. It got a good review in Seattle Examiner. It got good reviews. Really, um, stellar reviews uh, until it got to Goodreads, <laughs> and then the you know the unwashed masses who I'm supposedly wanting to rise up, right? And right. they started talking, and now I want them to sit down. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, so you know, a lot of people were like, "This is the weirdest book ever. How did this ever get published? It was so confusing." I I can't believe it. I started reading it. I thought it was going to be fun, and then I just got baffled, and it made me feel sick to my stomach. Oh, that's too so bad. So baffled, that kind of thing. I'm I'm over exaggerating. No one said they literally got sick to their stomach, but but yeah, it was that kind of response from about half the readers. I would say half hmm. the readers loved it. Half the readers were like, "It hurt my brain." What is? You hurt my brain too much. <laughs> It's a very psychedelic book. I mean, the, yeah. you have to have an imagination. But that's the whole point in using the character of Christopher Robin is to inject the imagination into the whole situation, right? Right. I think that the problem that people may have had, some readers, is that the distinction between what's real and what's green is broken from the first chapter. There's right. And so you're not dealing with a novel that works in a reasonable way. It's much more reasonable than any dream I've had, but it's still uh, a dream logic at, at work in the book. And so, it you know, it does ask you to kind of go along for the ride in a way that even Philip K. Dick novels don't require you to exactly. I think that we're, the style of the book, you, you acknowledge that uh, Guy Debord, was, was yeah. influential as far as that's concerned. Can you tell me a little bit more about that guy? Sure. And, um, it, it's Guy Debord. And <laughs> <laughs> um, no, uh, yeah, uh, Guy Debord, um, he was a radical theorist and revolutionary and a writer and a filmmaker. He, so he didn't write novels, although his wife, Michelle Bernstein, did. Or his girlfriend. I'm not sure if they were married or not. I think they were married. <laughs> they were French. It doesn't matter. So. <laughs> right. Well, he ended up with another younger woman later. But so, yeah, he was a theorist and he had a technique that was the technique that was really influential on the uh, 
on this book, which is uh, called Detournement, or Derailing. See you know how good I am at pretending I'm speaking French in some way? <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so he, this technique is where you take newspaper clippings, magazine articles, magazine advertisements, figures from um, Hollywood, celebrity culture, the spectacle, cut it up, rearrange it, give it a new context, and try to turn it toward revolutionary ambition to, to take the spectacle and turn it against itself. So mm-hmm. yeah, writing in new dialogue for Snoopy in a cartoon uh, you know, where Snoopy says something like, you know, I can't take the banality of everyday existence. I think I'll kill Charlie Brown in his sleep. Something like that. You know, there's a detournement. You're taking the, uh, something that already exists and changing it and turning it against the culture. So th- there's a lot of that in, in Building Moon. You know, Christopher Robin is deterred or derailed um, as a real person in the book or supposedly. And and even Guy Debord is deterred in my book because I take him from history and give him new dialogue and send him to work. It's also a Roman class, a novel with a key. Right. Yeah, so anyway, it's very early. See how I'm trying to speak everything but my own language here? But um, <laughs> yeah, so so yeah, this uh, Board was definitely influential. And he was a big influence on 68, which is the time period in which, and the, and the events which take place in the novel. He was a major theoretical leader of the student strikes and then worker strikes of May 1968. Yeah, and so it seems like there was this disagreement. I don't know if it was between Natalie and Gerard's professor or if it was between De Boer and Henri Bergson. Um, okay. But the idea it... of that the dream still needs to be rational. So there's this this play with dream logic and rationality, and I, it, maybe De Boer said it was it's soft headed or something. Could you? I, well, there's a professor whose name I think is Lemay in the book or something like that, mm-hmm. and but the real guy that I was writing about was named Henri Lefebvre, who talks to Natalie and to Gerard, um, who's the, the French student who kind of writes to Christopher Robin. And so, yeah, there's this debate about whether or not socialism will have to include the irrational. In other words, if you create a space or dream logic for a living that is socialist, will it have to be? Will it have to admit the irrational into it rather than being fully rational? And uh, there's a debate about that. And I don't come down one way or the other. I think Guy Debord was certainly, um, and Lefebvre would definitely side on the with rationality. And I think I do too, uh, because there's the word logic in the dream logic. It's not just anything, but um, there's got to be some there's there's some there's some gaps. <laughs> you just have to accept that there's going to be some gaps in your well, logic. You're kind of hinting at there's this. There's this theme of uh, the the end of childhood or, or something along the and you make that distinction between the idea of childhood through the works of of Milne and 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 J M Barry. That's how mm-hmm. you pronounce Barry. It's Barry, right? Or not Bede? So. 
<laughs> yeah, he's English. Go ahead, speak your own tongue. Could you, could you explain the difference between all of these different ideas of of childhood, as far as like the in the writings of Pooh and Peter Pan and stuff like that? Sure. Well, there's okay. There's there is the way childhood was viewed by A. A. Milne when he wrote Winnie the Pooh, and Barry is not a big you know Peter Pan is a side note. But well, A. A. Milne didn't really like children that much. <laughs> he didn't hate them or anything, but he thought they were kind of amusing the way puppies were amusing. Um, and it's what Christopher Robin says in the book, and I think that's true. He wrote about it in his own biography, A. A. Milne, saying he was kind of always surprised that, that Winnie the Pooh was his most popular book. He wrote it seriously, but he didn't think it. He didn't write it um, thinking it was his master work. He'd written a lot of other things. He wrote for a magazine called Punch. He'd written several novels for adults. He was a professional writer, you know, when he wrote Pooh. He was, this wasn't his first book. And he was not a great admirer or particularly sentimental about children. I mean, he thought they were fine, but he thought humans were basically um, at you know, not particularly noble creatures and that civilization and the process of growing up and learning the rules of society is what ennobled people and and that the the sort of crude charm of the child was the crude charm of a, of a undisguised egotism and you know Milne uh, was on the side of humanism and advancement and the enlightenment and civilization and so Winnie the Pooh was kind of reflecting that it was not meant to be uh, you know, any kind of hippy dippy celebration of authenticity and innocence. Hmm. Wow. For what it's become, <laughs> that's that's baffling. What's the difference between that and and Barry's kind of overindulgence? Well, I, you know, that was just a. I haven't read all of Peter Pan, I, you know, in a long time, so I don't know. But Barry is kind of known to wanted to escape into childhood. You know, um, he 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 did seem to have a sentimental view of childhood. It seems like it's hard to see the difference a little bit between Pooh and and Peter Pan. Yeah. Well, but I think the authors the the difference is the the author's distance from mm-hmm. the character and the author's attitude towards the character. Pooh is a subject of amusement. Uh, and gentle poking of fun. He's not meant to be a, mo- a role model. Uh, Christopher Robin's whole task in the book is to grow up, and he does that. Um, in your book he, or in the Pooh books? In the Pooh books. Ah. In the Pooh books. He has to leave Pooh behind. It's bittersweet, but it's <clears throat> it's not as though this is – that Pooh represents something that to be – Celebrated Peter Pan, you know, it's it's not so simple and straightforward. But Peter Pan is the hero of the story because he wouldn't grow up. Because he wouldn't grow up, right? Yeah. All the all my grown-ups are pirates. They're evil. They're bad. Right. I mean, Peter Pan. Uh, Wendy has to grow up and leave Peter Pan behind, and she's a real protagonist of the of the story. But, but. Peter Pan is a hero. He's not a fool. 
it's not a you know a moron. Pooh is pretty much a fool, and you know his his charm and his heroic moments are only happen by accident, and because he's innocent, maybe. If there's anything to admire, it's his innocence. But his innocence is not an innocence that's cultivated, or an innocence of choice. It's just, you know, he's he's guileless. Right. So. And and so then, the students are trying to come to terms with what they've created, this revolution that they started, and whether or not they too are guileless. You know, if they mm-hmm. can make this into something authentic like it it was authentic but could they create a new world right that's right and and the one thing that Christopher Robin was trying to bring to Gerard and to the students was a sense that they had to take responsibility for their own dreams and uh and not expect that the that they could remain completely innocent and take power which is kind of a Especially in the view of the 20th century, the kind of message is hard to take. But, but we can talk about that. Can I hit a? I, I want to hit this button to grind coffee. Can you edit grinding coffee? <laughs> <laughs> this is a morning talk show. Of course you can. <laughs> Hold on. You hear that? Yeah, that's great. Just barely. Perfect. Okay. Now I'm going to put the coffee into the. French press, because everything's French on this show. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so, yeah, the, the, you know, the, have you guys ever heard of Slovoj Zizek? Of course. For, for, from, and I know if you ever listen to me talk, and for more than five minutes you'll hear about him. But, um, <laughs> he, you know, a lot of, I think, crime, actually, especially on the big societal crime, is done by people who think of themselves as innocent, you know, who think of themselves mm-hmm. as pure, who think of themselves as kind of verified and validated by God or some sort of divine force, and who aren't taking responsibility for their own lack of innocence. Mm-hmm. If you know that you're doing something kind of shitty because you, it's because of you and your own ideas, that might slow you down a little bit rather than if you think, oh, I'm on the side of history or... I'm on the side of the master race, or I'm on the side of God. Then you, then you can do whatever you want. Yeah. So, I would say losing innocence is actually maybe going to be a humanizing thing. Taking responsibility for the violence that life makes you commit. Well, I used uh, to hear how Lincoln suffered from so much depression. I, I appreciated that because if he was doing such monumental historical actions, that at least he had some reflection. Mm-hmm. Questioning whether or not the rightness of his actions. Right. Yeah. Whereas Hitler was happy all the time. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit. Um, well, so mm-hmm. part of part of that is this idea of how. <sighs> You know, this is the dream logic. The the book is kind of happening. There's there's a waking up, but then also part of that is the comfort of being asleep. And so the workers wanted to have the comfort of routine. And so even Christopher Robin, you know, thinking about his bookstore, he didn't 
he didn't want the novelty of the new because that would force him out of there's there's an interesting distinction you make about what it is to be free could you speak a little bit and this is one of those underlying comments you know the idea of liberty and freedom and it's set in paris and you know there's so much history with the revolution and where they're at well i know i'm somebody who like lives by routines just like actually actually what makes me feel free to some degree like not having to take responsibility for deciding what I'm going to do every morning so I can putter around and think my thoughts and not have to think about practical matters at all because that's all routine. It's all going on right. in an automated way. So um, that's the kind of routine that gives freedom. That's for, for Christopher Robin, his bookstore and the routines of his bookstore give him some freedom. But there comes a point where the freedom of your own head, the freedom to think your own thoughts – that don't come with the freedom to, to do new things <laughs> um, is a kind of prison too. So, and also getting, you know, Christopher Robin was in the novel when he went to Paris, he was 48. I'm not 48, I'm 42. And I kind of understand that just, your life goes by and you, and you get to a point where you want to do things again or do something different, be somebody different. So the freedom, his, ru- is, his routine is, his routine is interrupted. Yeah, the freedom is to choose your own routines. The freedom is to kind of, if when you need to, break with what what has given you space before and, and create new ways of getting up every morning, new ways of living a life. You know, when this, there, there have been t- attempts at revolution and real change in history, and the, the, a lot of them have gone terribly wrong. One of them is, you know, in the Soviet Union, but, uh, it went wrong, but I heard about this, and I thought, yeah, they they were really trying because they were thinking, well, now that we've overthrown you know the czar, now that we've set up a new socialist society, how are we gonna? How are people gonna get married? What are we gonna do when people die? Like they had no traditions or routines at all. They had to create new ones, and that sense of having to set up new traditions, new routines, is what. Um, I think uh, real freedom is, and it's terrible. It's a terrible responsibility. Right, and then so one of the characters, Natalie, you know, one of the students. She and Gerard are part of De Boer's de- derailment club or society. And yeah, right. His project for Natalie was to live this novel, Hello Sadness. Right, and and so. That is interesting in terms of so you know here's your life, here's another life. You know what are what are the possibilities if we take you out of your normal comfortability and want you you know so this novel expresses the idea of free love. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, it's it's uh, it was a book that was a scandalous book in the fifties about a young woman and her affair with an older man um it it's kind of got an existentialist uh theme in it so the the characters are always talking about how bored they are <laughs> and uh this sort of decadent book and um the, and it was 
it's sort of a bourgeois fantasy, is I think how even Guy Debord would have thought of it. But the idea with living it out is, again, it's about the turning it or changing it or derailing it and saying, okay, the idea is in this book, the idea is free love. How do we live this out? How do we put this into practice rather than um, keeping it, uh, you know, as a, as a dream that's supporting our kind of everyday bourgeois erotic lives of desperation. So one of the, I think, I actually think Natalie is really successful at um, uh, getting to free love because um, she doesn't just, she fought, she starts down the road of trying to, not not just promiscuity, but just reenacting the, uh, the, the the ideas in the, uh, of the main character in the book and finds them wanting and has to sh- uh, shuffle around her own um, desire and even at at a point at a certain point has to decide she's to be truly uh, uh, someone who can create free love she has to be free of love and free of all these attachments and so she you know she she really does. Uh, struggle and work on it and you know also for her the fact that being defined by love and her you know romantic relationships um it, it, you know as a woman that and even though it's for anyone really but for a woman it was it's limiting it's too it's not enough and so she wanted total freedom she was more interested in the end in the whole thing of may 68 than she was in any kind of just you know private free love yeah she's a wonderful character I uh, I enjoyed meeting both her and Gerard. Yeah, Gerard's cr- a little bit crazier, <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, I like Natalie too. What? So, what would you say? So, you know, you talk about this in terms of the dream. What would you say to someone who would try and tell you that, you know, the reality we inhabit is more like what you portray than what we think of as reality? I would agree. That's why I wrote the book. I mean, that's the idea. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Because I so, kept thinking in terms of uh, Rupert Sheldrake's idea that instead of laws of nature, we have habits. And, and so that, and it was interesting because you, you pose these ideas of habits and routines in terms of freedom and things. And so, like, she, you know, when having growing up after the 60s when i think of free love you know it's like it it's uh it's free love you know here's <laughs> there's no value you know it's it's just uh unlimited sex but you know this is free that that has value <laughs> this is <laughs> yeah you've never had unlimited love sex so free. why you don't know <laughs> <laughs> Love, on, love freed you know this is love freed of mm-hmm tradition of routine of you know she really is derailing the idea of and you know that's what this is you know 1968 is taking apart reality and saying let's imagine something different right but she doesn't end up just back just one last comment on natalie she does not end up just having a lot of sex and she doesn't end up being freed of of entanglements either by any means she just realizes for a while and is uncomfortable with the notion that she's got the responsibility of setting the terms of her own romances and, and the, her own love. And she is free to do that. And, um, 
and she finds it, you know, she finds that those terms to be confining, and they, she has to change more than just her love life to be really free, and so she moves into all sorts of different directions, but, um, and she's hurt, you know, in the end, too, so it's not like, uh, she loses uh, someone she loves, and so, yeah, it, uh, uh, it's it's complicated. The thing about um, I don't know about whether or not there are physical laws that are just physical habits, but I do know that what we understand about the physical laws of the universe change all the time, and our ideas, our everyday kind of understandings change much more slowly. So like I don't really live I still live in a Newtonian universe, really. You know I you know, there are scientists around who can explain to me quantum physics if I and you know, I've tried to listen. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, I the Newton seems you know, understandable kind of the way I operate on a daily basis. So yeah, that's obviously that's a habit, right? To live in a Newtonian universe. And eventually we might live in a quantum universe, but then mm. some scientists might come along and and we'd have to revise our our ideas again. And and so the our relationship to the world out there, which in the world out there beyond us is probably the laws of it or the way it operates is probably never going to really change. It's just our understanding, our interpretation of the, the as far as we can go with our little meat minds um, is going to change. Um, uh, at least uh, that's that's how I think uh, of it. How does imagination fit into all of that? They, even in even in the terms of Billy Moon, is I think what I'm getting at. Well, imagination is never, you know, imagination is is never just clean and pure and and on its own. Imagination is always also a product of of the habits that you are, um, you know, brought up in, and so culturally. Yeah, culturally, politically, socially, economically, all of these things are habits, and um, and the the habit we think of the, probably the least um, as a habit is is the economic realm. I mean, we can imagine that uh, maybe one day we'll wake up and be able to fly, but <clears throat> we'll still have to like when we go to the store, pay for our food, right? <laughs> we we mm-hmm. we can revise the laws of gravity, but the laws of having to go to work every day that that's unchangeable or at least it seems so the, the imagination fits in it's the imagination to recombine uh, the world and to and the, the imagination to think critically i mean that's and rationality and imagination aren't really as opposed as we think um would be what i would say and and in the stream of that the how would the surrealism that's apparent in your book or perhaps the psychedelic tinge that is styled in your writing, I mean, how do how do these things affect our habits as far as surrealist art? I mean, what, well, what kind? They won't want it to, you know, the surrealists were, and I, this is, I think, always a part of, of every effort to create new habits, create new customs, create new reasons for being beat and, and find freedom. I, the surrealists wanted to find the super real to get get to um, some sort of source, and they turned to the unconscious and to dreams. And there was certainly a lot of power in their work, and that and there was a lot of interest in their work. And there and there is the, the unconscious is really interesting, but uh, 
whether or not it should, it, whether or not the unconscious can be liberated, um, is is still kind of an open question in my book. I think the, the like the idea of automated writing, just uh, sitting down and whatever comes out of your pen is is your work, uh, as opposed to edited editing and and refining your work. I think there's a certain naivete to thinking that automated writing is going to be more authentic or more interesting or more or even closer to the unconscious. So surrealism itself had to be transcended. And the situationists, the people who were involved in 68, thought that too. They they were indebted to the surrealists, but they were not um, uh, stuck with the surrealists and you know, just re- reproducing what the surrealists had done. And the thing about psychedelics is that I think, well, have you, if you guys ever done psychedelics? <laughs> yeah. Huh? Yeah, okay, good. Then I'm not talking. So you know that it completely <laughs> breaks up in your head, right? I mean, you feel like uh, the world is not so fixed, right? Right. But then the problem with psychedelics is that you then sometimes think, ah, and I'm communicating with the aliens, or, oh, God's <laughs> talking to me. And then the, the problem with that is not that maybe you are. I mean, maybe there are aliens out there. But the problem with that is that uh, you start to think, I've got the real secret now. I've got, I found the source. This version of, of cost, this custom, this, this uh, approach to living, this uh, understanding or interpretation, this is the real one. This is one that can't be questioned. This is na- natural. This is divine. Um, because, you know, I had these weird experiences and saw how the old one fell apart. So the, whatever's left, that's true. And... It's like, no, actually, what you don't understand is the universe falls apart. <laughs> it just will keep falling apart. And the new one's no, not going to stick together any better than the old one did. And you're on your own, buddy, and you know, with mm-hmm. or without the drugs. So the psychedelic experience uh, can lead to rigid thinking just as easily as it can lead to um, taking responsibility for your own uh, customs and ideas. To finish our political history lesson... What yeah. was what was the aftermath of uh, May '68? Yeah, yeah, it was really mixed. They lost, and they lost without even much of a fight. You know, there not a single shot was fired. There was an election uh, instead. You know, De Gaulle said, "Okay, I hear you. You want to participate more. You want more say over what your lives are like. You want more say in government and at the university level. We hear you. We're going to have a referendum. We're going to have a, an emergency election, and then." The left-wing candidates, such as they were, which they didn't really represent the students anyway, they all lost. De Gaulle cut power, and um, you know, politically, it was a it was a complete it was a failure. Then, but there were some you know the unions got some some of their demands met, even though they weren't really the demands of the workers. And the universities changed, and their culture changed a little bit. But overall, politically, it was a, not a success. The people didn't manage to have that revolution. And so one of the reasons uh, I wrote the book was to kind of look back and say, what went wrong? What what kind of thinking stopped that from going all the way to the end? And I think part of it was this idea that they could find that, uh, you know, take enough drugs or, you know, not literally, but take the right drug or have the right sexual experience or you know, take the right stance out in the street and then find the truth and that they didn't have to think up a new way of living, that they would just be themselves and live authentically after the revolution and now uh, you gotta gotta create new customs and create new ways of being so the 
there's you know we're dealing with two Christopher Robins. There's the real historical Christopher Robin and the fictional. Mm-hmm. And your fictional Christopher Robin reaches a place toward the end of the book. I'm wondering um, if the historical Christopher Robin, in his biography, also felt that you know he was never grown up, partially because of his father. And I'm just wondering if he ever arrived at a point where he felt grown up. Uh, yeah. Um, Christopher Robin, the man, wrote about the, being in the Pooh stories, and he did complain about how he had to struggle to become mature and struggle to prove to people that he was to be taken seriously. But he did that, and he went to war, um, and by the time he wrote those books, he, had, he was no longer he, – he, he was looking back on that struggle. And that was in uh, – he was in his 50s, and he certainly by the time he was – 48, he would have been, I think, well-established in his mature life. I don't, he never wrote about having a midlife crisis or anything like that. A lot of his books are about humanism and environmentalism or, or uh, conservation, as he would put it, um, the importance of just walks in the woods and the animals in his life and his view of whether or not there was a god and that kind of thing. And so... I think he did reach maturity in his own way. He was no revolutionary, you know. So I, I uh, certainly changed and altered the history to, to write about Christopher Robin the way I did. And uh, if, uh, you know, if anyone from the Milne family were to take me to task for it, I would just say, I did say, you know, this is not the real thing. Yeah. And anyone, anyone who wants to um, really know about Christopher Robin should pick up uh, his memoirs. He wrote three of them. And uh, Into the Woods is one of them. No, that's a novel. Oh, God, I shouldn't know that. And The Enchanted Places is one of them, for sure. I should know the titles since I read them and reread them and reread them, but somehow they all blend together. Kind of like Mark's brother's titles, you know, Duck Soup. Which one is that? But anyway. <laughs> Daniel, is he is he real? Or is he part Nicole of the book? Binet, um, yes, he's real. And he ended up in the Green Party. Um and being a somewhat controversial figure in France, and uh, some thought of him as a sellout, some thought of him as you know, too liberal, and he's still around. But then you, the interesting one, another layer to the to the book and habits is having Daniel be autistic. Oh, oh right, Daniel, that Daniel. No, there's no Daniel. Um, Daniel Combinet is a is a character in the book. You bet. He's part of the French Revolution. Yeah. Then there's Daniel. This the um, uh, kid. Yep. Uh, no. His son. His son. He didn't have a son. He had a daughter, and she wasn't autistic. She had, uh, I think, cerebral palsy. So I changed that. Well, so we're we're nearing the end of our forty-two minutes. What are you What are you working on now? What are your plans for the future? Well, I'm rewriting a book I I'd written several years ago before I wrote Billy Moon called The Brainwash Brand, about um, uh, this, the experiments in Canada that uh, where people were had their minds erased and they tried to do psychic driving and this guy named Cameron um, who uh, came up with the idea that they could erase personalities and put new ones in their place <clears throat> and uh, so I'm working on a novel about that idea and I've also uh, been working on a book about Star Trek and Marxism. I want to explain all of Marx's ideas by using <laughs> Star Trek references. Um, and I'm doing Diet Soap and uh, 
doing some other, you know, just kind of day-to-day copywriting uh, work for for big corporations. <laughs> so, so yeah, um, yeah, but this was a different kind of conversation than last time. You guys have clearly read the book, and uh, I appreciated it. Well, it was good I mean, both times. Thank you. Yeah, we appreciated the book. It was. Uh, I would say, if you needed to get one of your friends something for Christmas, this is a this is a fun book. I think it's a, it's a Christmas present for sure. All right, there you go. You guys are the best. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, um, so you guys talked to Richard Grossinger. Yeah. Yeah. How was that? Was that fun? Yes. I, mean, I listened to it. it. Sounded fun. Did it, you talk to him any more after your, that part was over, or? Not for too much longer. We, I mm-hmm. think we have some intention. He, he, his, the book we we're discussing is like this huge three-volume opus. It's so I'm sure. Right. So he's very. I, I talked to him really early days for Diet Soap mm. about a book he called. Um, he wrote called Waiting for the Martian Express. I think it was called something like that. Anyway, um, he's an interesting guy, and, to, and uh, I just thought that was fun to hear him again. So. He's got some awesome. stories, yeah. Well, uh, we'd like to thank you again because that's been 42 minutes. So, um, oh, good. Cool. Wonderful. Yeah. Thanks a lot, so, guys. You've been listening to uh, Douglas Lane on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com. More information about the work of Mr. Lane can be found at douglaslane.com. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests, to check out past shows, or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at 42minutes.com. If you like what you hear and would like to support the show, become a donor. Just follow the link on the website to the donation page. Next week, the McGregors are offering you a chance to win an audio version of their latest book, The Synchronicity Highway. Listen closely to the episode for the trivia questions they pose be the first to correct answer and you win thank you and if life is but a dream i regret nothing
Sacamo 